Welcome to another edition of Children of Song, the podcast that explores what it must have been like to grow up surrounded by music. For those taking this journey with us for the first time, we're speaking, of course, with musicians whose parents made a name for themselves in the music business. We'll hear about the interesting people who drop by the house on the weekends and what they learn from those wonderful experiences. We'll see how they caught the music bug themselves and ultimately what inspired them to continue the family legacy and pursue their own musical journeys. I'm Brad Newman, the producer of the series, and I'll be doing a little double duty today, taking some of the hosting duties on myself for what we're going to be calling our American Standard Sessions. And these episodes will focus on artists who interpret the great American songbook. We're talking about songs that would have been written by the likes of Irving Berlin, George Gershwin, Cole Porter. These would be popular songs and jazz standards from the early 20th century. We're bringing this to you from our podcast studios in Midtown Manhattan here in New York City. William Sanchez is our engineer. I'm excited about today because here in the studio, we've got one of the best guitarists and entertainers in his field. He made a name for himself by expanding the Great American Songbook, adding spectacular arrangements of modern pop and rock and roll artists like Tom Waits, Neil Young, John Lennon, and Paul McCartney. He's also played with everyone under the sun, including James Taylor, Rosemary Clooney, and the great, great Frank Sinatra. He's, he's driven to bring jazz to folks who wouldn't normally listen to jazz. Um, and he's also a great storyteller, as you're going to find out soon enough. And once you see his act, you'll see why they line up to see him again and again. So we're pleased so much to welcome John Pizzarelli to the podcast. <laughs> it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, you were a child of song because you grew up literally with a guitar in every room. Your father, Bucky Pizzarelli, who's still strumming along at, at 91, was a legendary jazz man, uh, a jazz guitarist, playing with the likes of Benny Goodman, Doc Severinsen in The Tonight Show, and and really it, <laughs> everyone from that generation, really. Yeah, and, and everyone from the generation be, uh, after that. He was even on all those rock and roll records that came out of New York, Dion and the Belmonts and the Four Seasons and Del Shannon and... Ray Charles and Tony Bennett was a big studio musician in the city, too, so covered so many uh, styles of music. It's amazing. I know. I was reading in your book that, um, you know, he, he did Stand By Me. I think they called him back. to the. It was like the fifth session of the day. Yeah. And, and that was something at the end of the day that they just cranked out. I mean, how quickly would those sessions have turned? Well, you know, he did, say, five sessions, so that each one was three hours long, so... Uh, they, each one was a different one, and Stand By Me may have been like the last of the of the three-hour sessions. So those sometimes started at midnight or something, and you know, and he's just going boom, 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 boom. You know, and he's just playing, just playing those little chords. You know, it's really wild. Would he come home and and get excited and say, "Wow, I think we really hit something great today," or was there just so many you you couldn't even remember? He's it, it's funny he hardly remembers a lot of them. There was a guy who runs the Del Shannon uh, fan club in of the United States who saw my dad at a gig in Albany and said, "I have the contract from Runaway. You're on Runaway, and you're the last guy alive from Runaway. Tell me all about it." He goes, nah, "I don't I don't remember. I remember a thing." It was like you know the guy had gotten to the Holy Grail, and then there was nothing there you know but that's my daddy did you know so many different things every day we, we've gone through the books and and it's just studios listed he go oh, that was a good studio well who are you with that day well, i don't really remember you know sometimes tony bennett we know now that he's he knows 
who the artists were, but those times it was the contractor and the studio was the big deal. Mm -hmm. And what guitar to bring. So you're growing up in Saddle River, New Jersey, you know, literally right across the Hudson here uh, in North Bergen County. Was it sort of inevitable that you would eventually play for a living? Yeah, because I couldn't hit a, a fastball. I wanted to be a baseball player and in Little League, you know, once I got hit in the head, <laughs> I was done. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I, I started in high school just meeting guys who wanted to play uh, in bands. And we had, you know, I had at my house amplifiers and guitars. So my buddy uh, Steve would say, uh, maybe we can hang out at your house. Can we plug all that stuff in? You know, and that's how it sort of started because we had amps and I had a couple of bass guitars and some guitars. And so we wanted to, you know, be the Beatles. What's interesting before we get to that, because I want to hear about those garage band days, because those were those were fun days and probably more informative for you than you even, you know, do you yeah. think so? Because oh, sure. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about, you know, here you have this great guitarist in your house and he doesn't teach you how to play guitar. Right. Well, it was always uh, like I, I've said, too. Uh, there were so many guitars in the house that if you wanted to sit down on the couch, you had to move a guitar. So eventually I figured, well, I might as well try to learn this. And what they did, too, because I was sort of rambunctious is when I was six, uh, they brought a tenor banjo one day. I'll never forget. It was on a Sunday. And they just said, here's the tenor banjo. It was a four-stringed instrument. And they said, you're going to go study with uh, your father's uncle, teaches in Ridgewood, New Jersey. And I would take the lesson at 4 o'clock on Mondays. And it was always like, bum, bum. And everything was like that. Everything was everything was a rally, you know. Everything just started like <laughs> that was like the ballad. Again. But that's got to be fun for a six-year-old too, right? Oh, it was great because I mean, I had to sit there and go and learn the notes out of the book. And at the end, he'd say, "Okay, now we're going to learn." Yes, sir. That's my baby. And we'd go. Yes, sir. Da, 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 da. You know, and and uh, it was like, wow, this is great. So when you got to Sunday parties and stuff, they'd say, you want to play? And I'd say, great, you know, and they'd give me the banjo. And, I, and and the way my father's uncles would play along with you, you sounded like a million dollars because they'd be playing other, they'd be playing, one guy would be, play a little higher, one guy would play a little lower, and you were like, wow, this is, I'm pretty good at this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the interesting thing here is it's something your father and, and you share is that, you know, you learn from the same teachers. That's the funny part. It's amazing. Right? I the mean, same guys, Uncle Bobby. Uncle Bobby and Uncle Pete, and, and uh, my father got out of high school. Every day he'd go to Uncle Pete's house and take a guitar lesson. That's what he wanted to do. And so when I got... You know, when I was six and seven, it started with Uncle Bobby and then uh, moved to uh, Peter later on. And it was just, they were just amazing musicians. And the music that they made was inspirational to everybody that heard them. Do you think maybe your dad, and and because he might have seen something even that you weren't aware of because you were sort of interested in the guitar, he thought, you know what, I want to put him on the right path. I want him, I could teach him, but I want him to have that same journey as I had. I think it's possible. That's a very good point. I mean, I never thought of it that way, but I think that he saw that I was trying to mess around with his guitars. So when I figured, when he figured, well, maybe we'll let him learn the banjo because it's a smaller, smaller neck and just the four strings. He figured we'll send him to Bobby and see how it goes, and it went it went pretty well. So you know, you're a young kid in the house, and you're having like all kinds of of people drop by the house. Yeah. I mean, I hear Benny Goodman drops by for a nap. Yeah. Yeah. It was like while if Benny was coming back from the city to go to Connecticut, he'd call my father and say, uh, 
uh, I was thought I'd come by and have lunch, you know, and all, all hell would break loose because my mother would go, oh, gotta go, okay. And then, you know, we were on high alert and we would be locked in a room for a while, <laughs> you know, don't let, don't wake up, you know, or, you know, don't come downstairs while Benny Goodman's here. And then we'd stick our heads out and see Benny Goodman. And then, or sometimes we'd come home from school and we'd go up, go running upstairs to our room and, and on the bed was Benny Goodman with his, you could, with his boxer shorts and his long black socks on taking a nap, you know, don't wake up the King of Swing, you know, <laughs> so it was crazy. <laughs> now, what kind of music would be played in the house growing up? Well, it was fun because my father, you know, we had the, that kind of music, Benny Goodman's music, American swing jazz. And then my sisters had all of the rock and roll music. They had boyfriends who brought really fun records. So, you know, we had record collections. So you'd see the Allman Brothers and Billy Joel and Little Feet and... Uh, and then even Michael Franks and Kenny Rankin, all these kinds of eclectic records were coming in the house through all these guys. Mm-hmm. And then you'd go through the rest of, you know, as I got older and I would, you know, hear about other musicians, you know, going, hanging out with my father and and watching him talk to other musicians. And I'd say, well, what's, who's that guy, Zoot Sims? And then I'd say, oh, there's a Zoot Sims record. And I put that on. Who's Clark Terry? Oh, Slam Stewart, Benny Goodman, Joe Pass, those kinds of things. Wait a second. What are all these other records that are in here next to the Beatles and uh, Jackson Brown and those things? So that's why it was always crazy that there was just a, a hodgepodge of everything. But you got to know some of these heroes of your father's, too. And they became Zoot Sims, uh, tenor saxophonist, yeah. and was very close with the family and, and would be really kind of a... a Come at a, Christmas a time all yeah. the time and play. And he would play my sister's band clarinet. You know, he wouldn't bring an instrument, but my father would say, my, my daughter's clarinet, you know. And so he'd start to play... Uh, He'd always play it. The one song that we knew at that time was Out of Nowhere, which was da da do 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 And we would just play the chords, and Zoot would play. We, would, we were like, well, this is the craziest thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, and Joe Pass came. I remember Joe Pass was a great jazz, probably the best of the solo jazz guitarists. And he was in from L.A., and my father said, I think I'm going to go get Joe and bring him over for lunch. And he sat on our couch, and the first time he played, he was like playing all these single notes. And I was going... Wait a second. I'd never heard the guitar played like that. And my father would look at me like, see, <laughs> there's, another, there's another voice on this instrument, and that's that guy, you know. Very interesting. And you used to take uh, Peter Frampton albums, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you would learn the guitar parts. Right. That's just r- from listening to the albums, right? Well, that's what we did. You know, we all learned, uh, you know, uh, and we'd learn all those little licks from the songs and the chords and things. And then a buddy of mine wanted to learn a song called Spain by Chikoria for his uh, recital at school. So we all learned, you know, and we learned it off the record. And my father one day went, wait a second, what did you guys just do? And I said, well, we learned it off the record. And he said, oh, well, if you could learn that off the record. And there was a record my dad made with a Chicago guitar player named George Barnes. He said, why don't you learn these duets and then we can play them together. And that's how it started, that we started to play together. I said, well, I can learn that off the record. I'll try anyway. But he didn't pressure you. See, that's, that's right. kind of interesting. Because he did it on my terms, like in a sense, like you know how to do it that way. So try that and see if we can, if you learn that, come back in a week. And we'll see if we can play it. And then I, I learned some of the parts of the, of the things and then... We saw that we could we could uh, we could play together, you know. And I'd go to gigs, and at the end of the gig, he'd say, "He just learned Honeysuckle Rose. Come on up and play." And I would play that, you know. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I realized I could stay on the stage longer if I learned more songs. 
But while this is going on, you're having all these still these garage bands because you had a real infatuation with rock and roll, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> you still wanted do. to do that, That's right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, you you thought you were going to be Billy Joel, or you you yeah. were trying to do that, right? Let's hear some of these bands, some of these early bands. <laughs> Johnny Pick and his Scabs. Yeah. <laughs> Johnny Pick and his Scabs. Johnny riding the waves. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that you would play in the in the garage, and the amps would be cranked up so high, the police would. Come. Yeah, my father still I think finds that to be the best moment of all time. We played outside once, and all of a sudden the cops showed up. Like, what's going on here? I said, well, we were just playing. I had my my buddy's big Vox amplifier, looked like the Beatles, you know, and we just made we always made too much noise. So he finally figured it got a room for us where we could you know lose our hearing, <laughs> and then we uh, would practice whenever we could. So you know, you it comes time for college. And you end up going down to the University of Tampa mm-hmm. and to study music, um, but you don't study the guitar. <laughs> right. Well, I was a trumpet player. Uh, that was the only thing I could read on. So I played trumpet through high school, and I had a really great teacher at uh, Tampa named Ron Byerly who taught me all about really playing the trumpet. But in the meantime, I was playing, uh, learning songs, and uh, I would play. I was just telling my daughter the other day, I, you know, uh, Nobody knew I played the guitar. They thought I was a trumpet player. So I went to a coffee house and I just played. Uh, I played a uh, do me wrong, do me right. I played this James Taylor song and I played on and on. Down in Jamaica. I played Kenny Rankin versions of pop songs and people were like, "Wait, what? Did, where did that come from?" You know, it was just something that I like to do. And then I got to be in bands and things like that at Tampa that didn't involve the trumpet. Interesting. <laughs> But you come back home and your dad sits you down because you're a little confused as to what direction you're supposed to be. Right. And it's it's a it's a pretty prophetic moment for you. Well, we had figured out that um, he was sort of like, well, just come home and we'll figure we'll play together. And so at the beginning, I had a little six string guitar and I would play the chords, you know, or I'd, I'd accompany him. Uh, but then he said, well, why don't you play the seven-string guitar because then you can accompany me. And the idea was that with the low string, you could, instead of chords like, you were playing. So you had like a bass line that was established. So he'd say, when I play a uh, single note, you can accompany me and then vice versa. So we started this little thing and uh, right off, as soon as I got home in 1980, we made a record called Two Times Seven Equals Pizzarelli and we had two seven-string guitars and we would start to play everywhere. And that's really was my, where my father started to say, you're the only guy who plays jazz to support his rock and roll habit, you know, because <laughs> I was making money with my father. But I'd still play jazz, uh, rock and roll gigs whenever I could. I was having fun. What was he like as a teacher? Because, I mean, here's this man who had an incredible repertoire. I oh, mean, yeah. he could play anything. Well, you know, that's what we were talking about. The, my, one of my first gigs the summer of 1980 was playing at the Pierre Hotel. And it was a four-hour gig. And I knew seven songs for four hours, you know. So he would uh, literally just play melodies. He would sit and go, play Isn't It Romantic on the guitar. And he'd look at me and wait for a chord. And if he didn't hear anything, he'd start to growl and play louder. And he'd sort of go, (laughs) So it was like a really uh, uh, masochistic ear training course. But I eventually, I learned, you know, 80 songs in in eight weeks. I mean, it was just amazing. I was starting, you know, and my ears were, uh, you know, uh, just became, uh, you know, phonically large because I could hear things. And I started to anticipate where chords were going to go and do all the, and and go, oh, I see how this is going to work. 
and I had this amazing lesson on the job training uh, where he didn't never wrote anything out. He just played melodies, and you would sit there and go, I would sit there and go, oh, I got to learn this. Okay. And, and then I'd start to see how song forms worked and things like that, and it really became, oh, I... You know, I started to learn who Richard Rogers was, who George Gershon was, who, and, and Jerome Kern and people like that. But it was also a, a time for you to bond with your father. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's sort of a mixed blessing having such a talented father because when he was around and bringing all these friends and cool people over, it, it must have been amazing. But I'm sure there were many nights that he wasn't home. Right. And the thing that I started to do when we would do gigs on the road was I would prepare little cassettes of records that I had of his that I really liked. And so I had him in the car. He couldn't go anywhere. And I'd put the I'd put the tape in, and then we would drive, and then he'd go, oh, that's, oh, I remember that one. That's Joe Venuti and me. And now, oh, well, you know, Joe really liked this. And I'd say, and I'd learn the history of the guys, too. Well, what about Joe Venuti, this violinist who came from Philadelphia with Eddie Lang in the 20s and 30s? You heard him on the radio, and here you are playing with him. Here's Stefan Grappelli with Django Reinhardt, and here you are playing with him all through the late 80s and 90s, you know. How does a guy do that? And he would, you know, well, I played, I ended up at this place, and then I, I played, and he was always ready to perform with these guys. Why Zoot Sims? Well, Zoot would always come to the gig mm-hmm. uh, up in, on uh, 73rd in Lexington, and I'd drive him home, and he'd say either a dollar a pothole or a block, whichever's more, I'll pay you <laughs> to drive me home, you know. So he had the same kind of experiences, and then I would learn from these things and learn more music from the things that I was putting on cassettes for him in the car. And you also probably got to learn what he liked about gigging so much because, you know, try to take us under the hood a little bit. Well, and what he liked about, you know, what was right and wrong about music, about jazz music, and what, why rhythm guitar, you know, certain rhythm sections, he'd say, that guy's not making it in that rhythm section. You know why? Because it's this way. This is that guy, Barry Galbraith, who's playing rhythm guitar on that Tony Bennett record. Is That's the way you're supposed to sound. Hear that sound? That's right. And then I was able to find those things. Here's how Zoot Sims plays the, the time that he has on the, the way he creates an excitement in a rhythm section. Those kinds of things were things that started to get. I was learning in the car. That was where my real studying was done because he would tell me all about these guys. What made your father such a great player as you got to I mean you really probably got to know him on such a different level even as an artist through 10 years of watching him play yeah what made him so special well he he respected the music so much and he always felt that it was just as important to be part of the group that as to be the soloist in the group so you also I also learned not just to play uh, single note solos to be the soloist, but to be the accompanist was just as important. And in some cases, it was more fun to play for somebody else. Like if somebody was going to sing and you were, you know, they're going, it's very clear. And you're going, I love is here to stay. And you come up and you could accompany somebody. Uh, that was a big deal. That was better than even going. That was fun. But the the real thing was trying to figure out, follow a singer see what, or a saxophonist or something. And, and that kind of stuff was everything my father was about. You want to play rhythm, play rhythm in the band. It's just as good to play the solo or to accompany or whatever it is. You have to uh, you know, adjust to those things. And th- that lesson was so valuable moving forward in the next 35 years. 
You know, he also, and, and you mentioned this, how much he appreciated the music, too. And the people he was working with. Right. And, you know, we've mentioned Zoot Sims, this, this great tenor saxophonist. I, I love the story um, that, that I, I read in your book, um, World on a String, by the way, a musical memoir. You should definitely pick it up. It is, <laughs> it, it's a very quick, wonderful read and some beautiful stories there. Um, but you talk about how he remarked that his favorite time he ever saw Zoot play, and that it was, he thought it was just perfect, was when they played together in a small club down in New York City, and there were like only two people there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is sort of the essence of it being about the music. Yeah, they pl- and Zoot played the gig with my dad. It was 73rd or 74th and Lex. It was upstairs, and they and it was my father's gig, but Zoot showed up every night to play with my father. And, you know, and my father kept going, it's my gig, and this guy keeps showing up. <laughs> and they became, you know, and when Zoot didn't show up, he'd send a sub, and he's going, you're sending a sub to a gig that's not your gig. <laughs> Amazing, But they really. had such great time playing for whomever was there. Could, yeah, two people, 20 people, whatever it was, it was always, uh, that's why, that's the other thing. It was always important to, you know, play for whoever. That one person is going to be the somebody who comes back years later and says, I have a job for you because I saw you play that night just for me. And that was important. You also learned to sing and, and, and you sang with your dad toward the end of that 10 year stretch. 10 years you two played together. Yeah. And I mean, all kinds of gigs. Everywhere. Right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it escalated toward the end of it but, and went to very legitimate gigs. But he would play, he would bring you everywhere. Oh, yeah. We played, well, we played, uh, we played nursing homes. We played gigs where they didn't listen, weddings, uh, any kind of gigs we played, and we and that was even there was a place out in Marstown, uh, in Metuchen, New Jersey, called the Cornerstone, and you'd sit there on the stage, and everybody would talk, and we would play for two hours, and we would sit and look at each other. Okay, that's a good song. I hear. Try this one, and we'd play songs, and we'd play for our first set of the four-hour gig was two hours. And then we'd go, okay, that was good, and we'd get off, and I'd say, we just played for two hours, but we learned a lot. And then the last two the last two hours we'd play maybe an hour of it somewhere or ninety minutes, but we actually we'd have listeners later, you know. But we'd already honed some of our stuff, and it was very it was so the, all of that that education was you know invaluable. Your dad also wasn't the master of the set list either, right? I mean, he played oh, whatever he yeah, <laughs> just start playing and go, you know. Like, Do I know that one? You had to be on your toes all at all time. times. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> Why don't you play us a little bit of a favorite song that you would have played together with him? Something that you oh, we'd always play. uh, We'd play like three little words. Oh, what I'd give for that wonderful phrase to hear those three little words. That's all I'd live for the rest of my days. And what I feel in my heart, they tell sincerely. No other words could tell it half so clearly. Three little words, eight little letters that simply mean I love you. So nice. You're listening to Children of Song, and this is our special American Standard Sessions, and I'm, I'm joined by the talented John Pizzarelli. You know, John, let's talk about, you know, trying to step out of your father's shadow. Such a great guitarist. And after the end of that 10 years, 
you know, you enjoyed it, but I think you also wanted to be your own man, and, and you wanted to lead a band, right? Yeah, well, I was starting to, because of my father, I had already made three records in the 80s just singing Nat Cole music. And then my fa- I got hooked up uh, at a label uh, called Chesky Records, and I made a record called My Blue Heaven, and was singing. And my father got the rhythm section, which was Milt Hinton, Connie Kay, who was the drummer for the Modern Jazz Quartet, D- Dave McKenna, a great Boston piano player, and Clark Terry, the greatest trumpet player of all time, and my dad. So I was sitting there going, okay, you know, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> uh, but the record was really great because of them, and... Uh, uh, they said, get a booking agent and a manager, and they immediately wanted to, uh, you know, I, I was going to go out on my own, but I wasn't going to be working with my father. And you ha- I had to spend three or four years establishing my own voice as a singer and a guitar player and a leader of my own group. So to go from, like, playing with my father in duo settings, getting standing ovations and all, you know, crazy gigs that I played, and here I was back at square one again reinventing what I was going to do. That must have been a transition for both of you. Yeah, it was for both of us because he wasn't working with me. So he was trying to go like, okay, wait, we used to do all these little gigs and have fun and now you're out. And he was trying to find his own thing. So he had actually got some groups together too. He was working with Howard Alden, a great New York guitar player. And then he hooked up with John Bunch, great piano player, and Jay Linhart, and they started their own group. So we, you know, we were all in this transition period for about five years. Um, out of this, you, you sort of catch some attention and, and hit the charts with a, with a fun song, which does show your sense of humor. Um, I love Jersey best. Tell yeah. me about that and, and play us a little bit of it. Well, we, uh, uh, my buddy wrote the song named Joe Cosgriff, who also wrote the book with me. And, uh, we ended up playing this song all over the place, made a little record of it. It got played on the air. And so it just followed us around. It was really just like, uh, Traveling down the turnpike, headed for the shore. Thought just then occurred to me I never thought before. I've been a lot of places, seen pictures of the rest. But of all the places I can't think of, I like Jersey best. And so all the Jersey people went nuts, and then we ended up making a different versions of it, and it just something that's followed me around for the longest time. You did. What do you think you learned from your father in terms of, you know, he really thought of himself as a freelance musician. Right. And he would really go wherever the work went. Right. But you considered yourself, I think, a little bit more of a band leader. Mm-hmm. And your gigs were kind of, because of that booking agent, established ahead of time. I mean, you knew where you were going to be for the next year, pretty much, or at least six months ahead of time. Right. There were... Did you see some struggle or the idea that he always had to struggle for that gig and that was something that you wanted to learn and kind of avoid as you moved on through your career? Well, I think it was interesting just to, I mean, I was starting to see what it was that he did as a sideman and then doing it as a leader for me was, uh, I mean, it was an interesting process just to, you know, learning the logistics of the whole thing, Get, you know, getting to the airport, getting on planes, getting somewhere, making sure somebody picks you up, doing a sound check, doing a gig, uh, knowing all the things by yourself. That was something that uh, still is something that's hard to do. <laughs> you no, know? it is. It's not easy corralling people. Yeah. <laughs> they don't do what you ask them to do. Yeah. And when you're on a stage and you're going, I know it's too loud already at the sound check and the guy, well, it's going to be, no, I, you know, I, you know, there's certain things you start to, 
you start to anticipate, and uh, but it takes a long time. And so all that stuff for the both of us was uh, it's a it's a it's a difficult process. You know, early in your career, uh, as you were catching stride, you you opened for the great Frank Sinatra on his uh, on one of his last tours, if not the last tour, second to last. Yeah. What was that like? What was he like? Well, it was uh, it was strange. I had seen him in 1986 at the Brendan Byrne Arena, and he was fantastic. And the first night that we played in Dortmund, Germany, in June of 1993, it was a completely different thing. He was a little older and. A little, uh, it was a little more tired, but there were sparks of greatness. So it was just sort of amazing to sit there and go, "Oh my God, it's Sinatra." Still, uh, aside from Paul McCartney, the one guy who could command a room. You know, he could walk in a room with five thousand people. I saw him play for, gee, it was twenty thousand in Hamburg, and and I was opening the show, going, "There's twenty thousand people here. What am I, you know, what am I doing here?" <laughs> so that was really nutty. I, you know, I'd come from playing bars in New Jersey, so a lot of those things were really amazing. And then, but just to watch Sinatra and watch the people who love Sinatra so much was uh, was an experience. Just you couldn't. I mean, I you, you can't. Uh, you can't imagine the command he had on a room. It just his his very being was something that was interesting. It's like you know, and the only other person, like I said, was McCartney. But as an artist, also to watch the music touch that many people at yeah. once, mm-hmm. you you do see the power of the music. And a, a lot of those charts were written in the fifties and sixties, and they're still good. I mean, every walk out and play "World on a String," and that's that's the chart that he's been singing so long, and it still holds up. So the idea that you get a guy to write you a great chart in 1956, it's still going to be good in 1993. And so that was a lesson to go, well, I, I, and I've kept up with that, you know, spending really a lot of money on charts that are going to be good for the rest of my life. You know, you mean, oh, this will, I'll save a little money and have somebody not so good write the chart, and then you never play it again because it's not good. But right. here's all this great music he's had forever, still works, and, and uh, it's a testament because he... He got Nelson Riddle, Billy May, Don Costa to write those great charts. And you go, that was, that was a lesson. Hmm. What did he think of your work? Because I know he would, <laughs> no, he would sit there behind the stage and he'd, he'd watch you. We'd watch him watch us, yeah. That would, that's got to be intimidating and encouraging. Yeah, it was a little of both. You know, and, but, and, and the first night, uh, he watched us in Stuttgart. We did five concerts in Germany. Then we did the rest of the concerts in the United States. And one of the nights in the United States, I said to uh, Hank Catanio, I said, well, I see him. He's there watching us. And I'm supposed to go off to the right side, but he's on the left side. Can I come off the left side, at least shake his hand on the way out? And he said, yeah, if you don't mind him telling you to get the hell out of the way. (laughs) I said, well, that'll make it for a nice story at least. So I remember I walked off and Shook his hand, and he said, that was marvelous, marvelous. We'll see you again sometime. I was like, yeah, like tomorrow night, you know. But it was, it was really amazing. And just to watch him go to work and to watch him snap his fingers while we were playing, I was like, well, he's digging it. You know, he's, That's great. He's not mad. You know, one of your missions is really to bring jazz to, to, to folks that are really not jazz listeners. Right. Um, how are you setting about doing that? I mean, I know you, you, you have done some McCartney. You worked with him on an album. Right. Uh, and, and I did, uh, I made a record uh, in the 1998 called John Pizzarelli Meets the Beatles. And the idea was to, you know, in a sense, the Beatle listener would 
recognize the song, but not the style. So we were we we put we set things the Beatles songs to in a sense said, "Here comes the sun." Is a Jobim song, so we'd be going. Here comes the sun, here comes the sun, and play it like like a bossa nova. Or we would take um, uh, "Can't Buy Me Love," and Don Sebesky set it to a Woody Herman song. That's called Woodchopper's Ball. But we were going buy you a diamond ring, my friend, if it makes you feel all right. Get you anything, my friend. We'd have the band playing those figures underneath it. So the jazz listener would go, oh, that's Woodchopper's Ball, but what's this Can't Buy Me Love song? And I thought that the Beatle fans would go, that's Can't Buy Me Love, but what's that jazz song? That's really interesting. And in a sense, uh, the record uh, was a love-hate record because the Beatle, some Beatle fans were like, well, you're stepping on you know, sacred ground. And some people were like, wow, it was really interesting. And it's followed me around for years. You know, it's been almost 20 years it's been out. So it's been an exciting process. And I think in a sense it has worked that people have gone, I really liked what you did with that thing. You know, how you you made jazz songs out of these Beatles songs. And it makes you realize how good the songs are. You know, the songs are always good, but they're good because you and then you can do things with them. And you can't really do that with bad songs. You can't dress up a bad song and make it better, which is a Beatle line. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think the the, the Great American Songbook, though, could be in danger if if it doesn't open itself up to different kinds of, you know, music and maybe, you know, taking contemporary artists and turning them into a jazz standard and changing the style? I mean... Well, I think it's interesting, like, even for... uh, Paul McCartney or Rod Stewart or, uh, uh, you know, these people are making standards. Bob Dylan making standards records. And they're, they're selling a lot of copies and people are hearing, uh, hearing songs that they would not have heard maybe. You know, they hear Paul McCartney sing Accentuate the Positive or I'll Be Loving You Always, you know, those kinds of things. And you go, oh, where did that come from? And then maybe they find... Uh, they look for always, and then they see Ella Fitzgerald sang it, or or or, or uh, Sinatra, or Nat Cole, and then they start to discover other things. I think that that is always the argument amongst people who say Bob Dylan just sang Skylark, a Hoagie Carmichael, Johnny Mercer song. Uh, it may not be the greatest version, but it puts that song in the ears of someone who hasn't heard those songs before. So that seems to be the argument. I'd like to hear you uh, play a Johnny Mercer song. I know that you uh, you did some stuff on Broadway years ago I with did. Johnny Mercer, and uh, you're going to be doing stuff, uh, I think, this week at, at the, the Car- at this the week Car- and next week at the yeah. Carlisle. Can you can you play us a little sure. Johnny Mercer song? I took a trip on a train and I thought about you. I passed a shadowy lane and I thought about you. Two or three cars parked under the stars, a winding stream. Moon shining down on some little town, and with each beam, same old dream. With every stop that we made, I thought about you. And when I pulled down the shade, I really felt blue. I peeked through the crack and looked at the track, the one going back to you. And what did I do? I thought about you. Mm, 
memories. <laughs> Have you passed this along to your kids? Does uh, Does John Paul play? Uh, my son. Here's what I what happened. Uh, my son liked playing the guitar, but ne- it never took to it. But he has applied his improvisational skills uh, to food. And he's now uh, he, he's working downtown at uh, a place called Babo, Mario Batali's place. And he's always the guy who said, I'm the guy who said, if the recipe says you need a teaspoon of thyme and I don't have it, I freak out. He goes, well, you don't need that. You can do this. You can. And he, he knows how to not be freaked out by not having ingredients, to use other things. But my daughter... Uh, his guitar nut. She loves to play the guitar. She's in college, just freshman year, and loves music and has introduced me to all the new, you know, acts that she likes, Mumford and Sons, and there's a group called Dawes and Ed Sheeran and all this stuff that she listens to and says, here's why this is good. This is the better song than that one. And it's like, oh, thank God. I actually know who people are on the Grammys now because I have a daughter who really likes to play the guitar. That's cool. But she, like, like we, uh, we liked Joni Mitchell. My, my wife said, to my daughter, here's a Joni Mitchell songbook. She tunes her guitar not like this, but like this. And so she started to, and next thing you know, she was starting to figure out that Joni was tuning her guitar all differently and started to play all these things for us. I was like, oh, how'd you figure that out? Well, it's in the book. And online now you can see all that stuff. So it was really a whole education that I was getting from her about the different ways the guitars, people are playing the guitar now. So what's next for you? What what do you want to do as an artist now, moving forward? Uh, I like well, I'm I'm I like the idea that the the thing that is important to me is is playing live. You know, we can make records and they're not you know they they do what they do, but you can't replace the live show. So every time I go to play somewhere, I'm, I want to make it special and I want that to be something that people don't forget. They pay a lot of money to come out and sit down and say, okay, this is, I put my hard-earned money down, give me something. And so the, I, I respect that, uh, that as part of my job. So the idea of presenting the music and making those experiences special is something that's my goal each and every time I get on a stage. What do you get out of performing? And that Because there's a lot that comes back at you from yeah. that audience. And you give to them, but you get a lot, yeah. too. I love that. I like the idea that uh, it has an effect on people. I like to sit down after a gig and sign the CDs or say hello and get your picture with somebody and those kinds of things. That's... Uh, something that I wish, you know, if I went to a Pat Metheny concert, I wish I I could sit down and buy a record and have Pat sign it and say, I really liked it. Can I, you know, have a guitar pick or something, you know? Uh, I, You know, Pat's so famous, it's hard for him to do that. But I, I'm not that famous that I can't sit down and say hello to people after a gig in a club or even a concert hall, you know? I think it's important. As we go out, can you can you play us a, a little something from the new album? Let me see what I could play. I, oh, this one. Uh, so the record is uh, celebrates 50 years of Jobim and Sinatra making a, a bossa nova record together. Sinatra singing uh, even some standards as bossa nova, like bobbles, bangles, hear how they jing, jingalinga, bobbles, bangles, bright shiny beads, sparkles, spangles. Your heart will sing, singalinga. Wearing bobbles, bangles, and beads You'll glimmer and gleam So make 
make somebody dream so that someday he may buy you a ring, ring a ling a. I've heard that's where it leads. Wearing bubbles, bangles, and beads. John Pizzarelli, thank you so much thank for being you. with us. Oh, I appreciate you having me. It's been fun. Thank you very much. Before we let you go, we want to welcome you to the B-Side, Stories from the Road. Here's where we get a chance to tell one more story, and today we've got an absolute gem. John Pizzarelli was lucky enough to play with his father, arguably one of the best guitarists of his generation. He taught him everything he knew about playing charts and entertaining all kinds of crowds, big and small. Here's a story from their time together on the road and a glimpse of how Bucky Pizzarelli liked to spend some of his free time. Well, I tell the story a lot about my father and I being on the road. The first time, really, I came from the University of Tampa for spring break. And my father was playing with Zoot Sims and a bass player and a drummer at the Hyatt Hotel in New Orleans. So I flew in and uh, I was 19, you know, and I was all excited. And my father would say, you come and we'll play. you can play a little with me and everything. It'll be great. And Zoot was really great. He let me play. And on the first day off, we played. I got there Friday. We played Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We had Monday off. So I was, we were rooming together, my dad and I. I was sleeping in. And I could hear my father in the other bed, and he was going higher, higher, lower, lower. And I was going, what's, what's going on? He was like, woke me up. So I was going, well, and I had the covers over my head. I was sleeping. I'm a college student. So I figure I'll go look and see what the hell's going on in my father's bed. Higher, higher, lower, lower. Okay, and I look, and I see him lying in the bed, and he's got the covers up to his nose. And I look across the room, and I realized he was watching The Price is Right on mute. so that was my my first road experience with my father how he got me out of bed (laughs) that's great we're gonna do one more song i'll play i got rhythm and uh uh this i'll I'll give this is the you know the the kitchen sink arrangement (laughs) i got rhythm i got music i got my gal look at us for anything more I got daisies in green pastures. I got my gal, look at us for anything more. Old man trouble, I don't mind him. You won't find him at my door. I got starlight, I got sweet dreams. I got my gal, look at us for anything more. Who could ask for anything more? Well, I got rhythm, I got music I got my gun, look at us for anything more Could ask for anything more. Mm, awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Next week, we head back to country and the mega-talented Sarah Evans. We'll find out what it was like growing up leading a family band and hear some of the prettiest harmonies on the planet. Children of Song, 
the podcast that combines live music with great storytelling. Till next time, I'm Brad Newman. Thanks for listening. Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Listen to Fox News podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.